Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating, and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical, and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Today's episode is monitored by Garmin. If you're sick of charging your fitness smartwatch every night, Garmin gives you up to 11 days of battery life on a single charge. So if you want a smartwatch that stays on your wrist and not on your charger, head to garmin.com.au to find out more and use my code Leanne10 on any venue SQ2 for a limited time only. Now here's our podcast. Today's special guest on the Leanne Ward Nutrition Podcast is Professor John Hawley, who is currently head of the Exercise and Nutrition Research Program and director of the Mary MacKillop Institute for Health Research at the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. John's primary focus of his laboratory research program is the interaction of exercise, training, and diet on human health outcomes, with a specific emphasis on lifestyle interventions to combat obesity, insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, and cancer. He is internationally recognized in his field of expertise, having published 300 articles in prestigious journals such as Cell, Science, and Cell Metabolism. He is a member of nine national and international societies, sits on the editorial boards of seven major journals, whilst also being an active reviewer for many journals and national funding agencies. John Hawley is a perfect evidence-based guest to bring in the latest research when it comes to time-restricted eating, high-intensity interval training, and women with overweight and obesity. So grab a pen and paper and be sure to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues who may benefit. Welcome to the podcast, John. It's very exciting to have you on the Leanne Wood Nutrition Show. Thanks, Leanne. Looking forward to uh, discussing whatever we're going to discuss. <laughs> exactly. And you are very well regarded as one of the top researchers in the areas around you know, exercise training and diet and the impacts that it has on human health outcomes. And I love that you have a specific emphasis on those lifestyle interventions to combat things like obesity and insulin resistance because it are, they are topics that so many people really struggle with. So can you tell our listeners a little bit more about how I guess you got into these specific areas? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I'll try and keep the answer a reasonably short soundbite. I mean, I was I was an athlete. I was a competitive athlete, so I always had an interest in exercise. And, you know, I tell people now exercising every day for me is almost like brushing my teeth. It's just become a, a, a lifestyle, if you like. And mm. I think I can count the, the number of days on one hand that I miss exercise in a year. So I guess I'm an avid exerciser. The lab that I work in and that I head, really we're looking at how exercise imparts its beneficial health benefits. And we've moved away, if you like, from the athlete because you know they're they're reasonably healthy for the most part. And we're looking at people with metabolic diseases and 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 lifestyle disorders. And I guess the problem now is that for many Australians, they don't get enough exercise, the diet is inappropriate. We have very high rates of obesity, not only as adults but as children. So we're trying to put the brakes on that a little bit. Um, and part of that is, you know, talking to people like you and getting the message out to the to the general population in, in manageable sound bites that they can both understand and translate into their daily living. So I guess one of my big goals is to make sure that the research in our lab 
gets out into the real world and can be you know taken up by the community and, and the average person and I love that we've got you on the podcast today we're very excited to share particularly your latest research but also those little tips and tricks that you've sort of learned along the way as part of your journey as well with our listeners today great good wonderful well before we dive into the research paper which I must say I'm very excited to chat to you about I think it's important to sort of just take a step back and let our listeners know some of those key topics or messages that you were really investigating within the research paper so the first one that I wanted to cover was time restricted eating so what are the benefits what is it and why would somebody even consider something like time restricted eating all right good question um Time-restricted eating is, if you like, the, the latest, uh, and I don't use the word lightly, but if you like, diet fad on the market. And I think I said to you before we started the interview off, off air that this is probably the most exciting thing that I've experienced in the last couple of decades as a researcher. So so what is time-restricted eating? Well, first of all, I'm going to ask your listeners and yourself, Leanne, you can do this test as well. What is your first energy intake of the day? In other words, what is your breakfast time? Mm-hmm. Put that down on a piece of paper, and then I want you to also think of the last calorie intake of the day. And I don't mean dinner. I mean that little chocolate or that bit of ice cream or those two glasses of wine that you're having while you're watching TV or whatever, and look at the number of hours that that is. Now, with our people who are obese, overweight, certainly type 2 diabetics, sometimes that eating window, as we will call it, is 14 hours plus meaning that the time between the first and the last intake is a massive 14 hours. Mm. Time-restricted eating is a very simple practical strategy whereby we do not ask people to cut out chocolate, to cut out wine, to cut out all these nice discretionary foods that we like. We merely ask you to reduce the eating window. So in the example I've given you, if a person's got a 14-hour eating window, we would say, well, perhaps try and push your breakfast a little later and bring your evening meal in a little earlier. Try and reduce it to around 10 hours if you can. Better still, nine hours, but most practically, probably 10 hours for those sort of individuals is, is the best way. So that's what time-restricted eating is. It is reducing the time between your first and last meal such that your eating window is approximately you know, nine, 10 hours. So a very simple message for, for people at home, merely push your breakfast out a little bit later if you can, bring your evening meal a little bit earlier if you can, and just try and reduce that eating window. We do not and are not concerned with changing what you eat. We're just concerned with the timing of when you eat. Mm. So you're not saying don't have that glass of wine or don't have that little bit of chocolate after dinner. You're just saying have it within the specific eating window. Indeed we are. And we know, Leanne, from the studies that have been done for the last two, three decades, that once we say to individuals, abstain from this food or cut out this food, the compliance is reasonably good for about six, seven or eight weeks. But then if you look at the long-term effects of these so-called diets, people don't lose weight and people are back to their normal and inverted commas, bad habits very soon after that. So I think the joy of time-restricted eating is that it's such a simple message and can translate it into everyday life relatively easily compared to all the other so-called diets that are out there. Mm. And I guess our listeners at home are probably thinking the same question that I'm thinking. Is time-restricted eating intermittent fasting? Is it the same thing or are they different? Really good question. And I'll step back to answer that because there are two other strategies that are really if you like, hot on the press at the moment. And one is this intermittent fasting, and the other is just simply chronic energy restriction. And very, very briefly, chronic energy restriction 
and intermittent fasting are not what we call chrononutritive strategies. In other words, when we look at time-restricted eating, we're trying to eat in normal circadian biology time zones. When you restrict food, you are doing something completely different to fasting, where you're really trying to, if you like, get the benefits of a fasting or a weight reduction diet through weight loss. And very, very briefly, we know that a lot of the health benefits that you can obtain from time-restricted eating come without any weight loss whatsoever. So as you pointed out, intermittent fasting, and I've added the chronic energy restriction, their benefits are obtained through weight loss. Time-restricted eating is a different mechanism. It's aligning your time in a food with the day's normal circadian rhythms. Mm, wonderful. And I know that there's a lot of research within time-restricted eating and that sort of metabolic population, insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. Would there be anyone who time-restricted eating wasn't appropriate for or maybe perhaps even more negative for? I'm thinking perhaps perhaps in pregnancy, maybe you know, breastfeeding, that sort of thing. Yeah, look, there's, I guess the, the population that comes to mind and the question I'm always asked, and it's a very, very difficult one and I haven't got the answers, is, People who do shift work and people who, if you like, eat and work out of normal hours. Now, of course, <laughs> time-restricted eating is, is very difficult to implement into those schedules. But referring back to your question, is there anyone who won't benefit from this? Not really. I, I would suggest that if your listeners have a 14, 15, 16-hour eating window, they're probably headed for some sort of <laughs> mini disaster somewhere along the line. Because if you're eating over that prolonged period, literally certain things which you can discuss later, such as your blood glucose, remains elevated throughout the day. And that's not necessarily a good thing. So I think the simple answer to your question is, I don't think there's anyone who wouldn't benefit from some sort of time-restricted eating, particularly if they have an eating window of you know, 12, 13, 14 hours. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And then the other thing that your paper really talks about and goes through is something called your HbA1c. So you mentioned blood sugar control. For our listeners who, I guess, perhaps aren't diabetic or they don't know someone who is, can you let our listeners know what your HbA1c is a measure of and why that sort of has a clinical implication? All right. Well, let's again, let's take one step backwards. Let's just take a normal individual who is a healthy individual and what happens in response to a normal meal. As soon as you ingest a meal, you get a rise in your blood glucose. We have a hormone called insulin, which is secreted from the pancreas, and its job is to bring down glucose after a meal. Now, the interesting thing is in people who are what we call insulin resistant, and these are generally people who are a little bit overweight, uh, obese, and particularly people with type 2 diabetes, this system doesn't work very well. And so what we get is, compared to the healthy individual, a prolonged elevation in glucose. Now, what's the problem with that, you may ask? Well, the problem with that is that these elevations in glucose persist throughout the day, particularly if you're eating, as I said, in a 14, 15-hour time window. These cause damage to blood vessels. They are associated with many, many effects on the cardiovascular system. In other words, they have a very negative effect. Now, that's blood glucose taking a snapshot. You ask me what HbA1c is. That is a measure of your glucose control over the last three or four months. So it gives clinicians and people like us in research a snapshot of basically what you've been doing right or wrong for the last three months. And as a clinician, it's a very, very, very important measure because that number really tells us if you're heading towards a state of type 2 diabetes or other metabolic conditions. So it's, if you like, a 
prolonged snapshot of your glucose control. Hmm. Which is so much more important as a clinician, as myself, as a dietitian who sees people in clinic. If I just got someone's blood sugar reading and for whatever reason it was their kid's birthday and they had some cake at morning tea, which they wouldn't normally do compared to a normal day if they came and saw me and they'd had a lovely salad without any carbs at all for lunchtime, we can get very different readings, can't we? So having that if you like average across three or four months is a really, it's a key thing for researchers to look at, but also clinicians to be guided by as well. Well, you've hit on a very good point there, Liam, because uh, if, if I'm really honest, I, I doubt very much the value of physicians these days, just looking at a fasting glucose or a fasting insulin. What we tend to do in the laboratory situation is more real, real life situations. We give our subjects a meal challenge because that's what they do. No one comes in fasted and has 80 grams of sugar and then we look at the response that's completely impractical and not real world so your your analogy of the the birthday cake party is is quite true it depends on the last eating occasion so the hba1c does give you a a very accurate like guideline of to what's gone on for the last you know two to three months and and the interesting thing is of course it can change within that time period so we generally don't look at measures of HB1C in our studies until the subjects or participants have done six or eight weeks of our intervention. But I can tell you with time-restricted eating, we get some very, very positive and very rapid results. Yeah, interesting. So that, I guess, leads us straight into your new research paper. So it's titled, Time-Restricted Eating and Exercise Training Improves HbA1c and Body Composition in Women with Overweight or Obesity. And it was a randomized control trial, which I know from my science background is a wonderful type of study. (laughs) So well done. (laughs) Now, can you tell our listeners a little bit, I guess, about this research paper and what your, your findings were? Sure. Well, let's let's go through some of the, I, I guess, the, the very positive things about the study. First of all, your listeners will be shocked to hear that if I trawled the entire literature on diet and exercise, probably only 10% of the studies have been done on females. So I think we get a big tick in the box there for looking at females with overweight and obesity because most of the studies are generally conducted on males. And it's a massive, massive flaw. And if I'm really honest, I think I've published over 300 papers and I think I've got about seven or eight with females. So I first put my hand up and say, can do better, should do better. So I'll try and amend by and report card accordingly. (laughs) We're interested in this population because, as I said, people with overweight and obesity, that's the precursor to type 2 diabetes. So anything that we can do to halt that progression or reverse that progression has to be beneficial. Now, we know that exercise has lots of positive benefit effects and you know your listeners probably are aware of some of those and I, I don't need to go into detail there but time restricted eating has similar effects in some instances so our question was well we know time restricted eating is good for some markers of metabolic health we absolutely know exercise is what happens when we put the two together so that was setting up the the study if you like it was a it was a seven or eight week study um participants again it was a very difficult study because we did it during covid so even though all the exercise testing was undertaken in the laboratory to start with with covid conditions we had to get our subjects to exercise outside i have to say the compliance was excellent and again i guess a tick in the box for our subjects they complied on around 88% of all the exercise sessions wow. and they reduced their eating window from around 14 hours to 10 hours so full marks to our subjects. Yeah. Now, our subjects were not only good, but we had a lot of them. Um, and this is a problem with a lot of studies. They study six, eight, 10, 12 people. 
if you really want to extrapolate to the general population, you have to take subjects from the general population and a lot of them. Mm. Um, and, and again, that was a, a tick in the box there. Now, the interesting thing is the the main outcome variable, uh, which is this HbA1c, as you said, was improved with the time-restricted eating and exercise-only groups. So we had four groups here, one of who didn't do anything. They were just our control group, one of whom did time-restricted eating, one of whom did high-intensity exercise training, and the other group who did both. And the combination did have an additive effect. So uh, I guess the lead question that I've got asked on this before is, if you only had to do one, which one would you do? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> and that sort of puts me on the spot. And and I'll give the, the answer to that is I would still do the exercise first for this one and only reason. When you do time-restricted eating, it is generally but not always associated with weight loss. And I guess if a single message gets through to your listeners today, and I've done my job reasonably well, is that when you weigh someone, the scales don't tell you anything about their body composition. Mm. Now, what I mean by that, and you'll know this in your role as a dietitian, Leanne, is that we're not concerned with weight, scale weight. We're concerned with how much muscle mass you have and how much fat mass. Mm -hmm. And the point I want to make here is in our study that the exercise group were the only ones who actually increased slightly their muscle mass. And that's very important. And muscle mass is incredibly important as we get older. Uh, we know that the incidence of, for example, osteoporosis is one in seven in females. Without that muscle mass and that functional strength, females step off a curb, fall over, fractures and and then it's a downhill spiral from there so sorry about the long-winded answer but the the true answer there is that i would definitely pick exercise first but as you said earlier in the question time restricted eating is something that anyone can do every day anyway so there's no reason why we shouldn't ascribe to that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and did you see positive benefits in the groups that just did the exercise and just did the time restricted eating as well we did, but they were very, very similar. Um, and again, the, the one difference there was that when the time-restricted eating group did lose weight, they tended to lose a little bit of muscle mass, which is mm. not a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've had this discussion with probably the pioneer of time-restricted eating, a, a guy called Professor Sachin Panda, who's who's written a book on this, and he's from the Salk Institute in uh, in California. And, and I say, well, I'm really a muscle physiologist. I'm concerned with muscle health. And he says, yes, but John, you know, you want the liver to function well and you don't want high density lipoproteins and all this cholesterol circulating around. So we have this debate where we beg to differ on which organ is more important. But for me, skeletal muscle wins hands down because it's around about 45, 50% of your total body mass. So if you've got a healthy skeletal muscle, you've generally got a healthy person. Mm, absolutely. And actually to um, go back to when you're saying, you know, old women step off the curb, they break something. I actually used to work in the orthopedic world when I used to work on one of the hospitals and the amount of knots that I used to see. So people coming in and breaking their hip yeah. um, and the research was phenomenal. You know, most of them didn't make it home. Most of them didn't survive the surgery, let alone um, their quality of life afterwards was, was not great. So I'm a big believer in maintaining that muscle mass as well. And that's what I guess a lot of your research points towards as well. So I I think they're both sort of equally as important, aren't they? <laughs> they are. Look, the, 
the muscle mass one, I mean, I can't think of any condition which is not improved by having a greater muscle mass. And as you said, as we get older and more frailer, I mean, I I always tell participants who come in, the first thing they put down usually is their age. And I say, well, you know, you're 40. Do you realize that you've hit your peak muscle mass already and it's all downhill from there? And they say, (laughs) what do you mean? And I say, well, look at the studies. They show quite clearly that after 40, it's very hard not to put on muscle mass, just to maintain it. Mm-hmm. So if you can maintain or attenuate that rate of decline of muscle mass, you're in business for the long term. So I think maintaining a healthy muscle mass is absolutely imperative. And that's one thing that time-restricted eating doesn't do. And why I think if you can encourage your listeners, and the message would be both is better than one on its own. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you talked about body composition within the paper as well. So I think that's really important to differentiate between scale weight loss and just losing body fat like we talked about. Yeah. I'm interested as a sports dietitian by background as well. Did you measure DEXA? Did you do skin folds? How was body composition measured or did you just have one of those BIA type scales that the participants used? No, we did it properly, Leanne. You'll be pleased to know. Look, I'm not very hot on the uh, bioelectrical impedance. I think there are a lot of errors there. Skin folds in the hands of an expert are very good, but the gold standard, as you will know, is the DEXA. So for the listeners, this is a literally like a sunbed that you lie on. It <laughs> takes 20 minutes to do a scan. It gives us a very accurate measure of your lean muscle mass, your bone mass. And it actually, for females, gives us, a, and, and males, of course, but gives us your bone mineral density, which is a mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, in some cases, a very bad prognostic measure of if you're going to get osteoporosis later in life. So I think one of the things of studies like this is that we're actually able to give subjects a lot of information back. But in answer to your question, yes, DEXA is the gold standard. And I like what you just said about scale weight. I, I, I've got a son who's a an athlete, state level athlete in four sports. I've got a wife who is, as you probably know, a very famous sports nutrition, Louise Burke. We don't have scales in the house. Mm. I Mm. don't have a pair of scales. I couldn't tell you the last time I weighed myself, probably when I was an undergraduate student in a study. All I do is, well, these are the same Levi jeans that I wore in college. It's the same size that I'm going to wear now. If I have to buy a bigger size, it's an admission of defeat. So I don't have scales and I'd encourage your listeners not to look at scale weight, but to, if they can, get an accurate measure of body composition, more important. Mm. And just for our listeners at home, I think some people aren't aware of this. Um, the general public can actually access a DEXA scan as well. So yes. you can, there's a couple of places, even around Brisbane, I know of three or four off the top of my head where I am. Um, and there's, you know, if you're living out in a country town, it might be a bit harder to access, but generally in the big cities, there are multiple places that will do a DEXA scan for you and you can have a couple each year as well, um, you know, very safely, because I think some people are concerned about a small amount of radiation with them, but it's a very, very small amount and a few each year is is considered quite safe, isn't it? It's less radiation uh, than when I fly back from the Gold Coast to Melbourne. (laughs) So as you say, you're fine to have, I I think we're allowed to give our participants four a year, but uh, I'd stress it's very, very important, not just for for everyone, but specifically for females. If, If you're at almost the postmenopausal stage, I mean, it's very, very hard to to get back any bone mineral content that you've lost. So if you have any early warning signs that you are on that slippery, slidey road, there are certain things you can do. And one of them, of course, is exercise. Uh, and by exercise, we mean impact exercise. There's no question that uh, weight-bearing exercise, such as just as jogging or walking, it, it is probably better than cycling or swimming where there is no weight taken and therefore there's no stress on the 
on the muscles, bones, and 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 as a result, there's no increase in bone mineral density. Mm-hmm. So I was going to ask you about the training, actually, and I think I know what your response is going to be, but I'll ask for our listeners at home anyway. When uh, the participants did the HIT training, so that high intensity type training, yep. was that a mix of both cardio and resistance based training, or was it a particular model that they followed, or a, a training regime that they followed, and how long? How often did they have to train, and how long? All right. So HIT for your listeners is this high intensity training, which has got a lot of a lot of popular press in the last few years, and indeed was um, uh, it was one of my keynote lectures here at the conference uh, in in the Gold Coast this week. It's it's not something that's new. That's the first thing. Athletes have been using this for ages, and I guess that's where uh, being an ex athlete sometimes you can bring some of your uh, athletic traits and athletic characteristics into the into the common uh, marketplace, as it were. So. Athletic training by use of interval training is not new. Its application to the general population, though, is new. And look, the definition of high-intensity training is basically bouts of high-intensity exercise, near maximal effort, with prolonged periods of recovery. The point being here that I want to make is that the main reason given by any individual, independent of sex, income, race, or occupation for not exercising is a lack of time. So we were interested in saying, all right, we can't get our, particularly these females who generally run the house anyway, we can't get these people to exercise for, you know, 150, 300 minutes a week or whatever. What can we give them? So we gave them high intensity interval training. Mm -hmm. We gave them three sessions a week because for health benefits, that's all you need. You do not need to exercise five, six, seven days a week. If you're an athlete, yes, you probably do. But if you're just looking at health benefits, I think the message that we're getting over to the population is that we're prescribing too much exercise. And it's a topic for another discussion. But I think the health recommendations and guidelines are so out of reach for the majority of the population that it tends to put people off. People ask me, they don't come and say, John, what's the maximum amount I can do to get, they say, what's the minimum amount? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the message that the, the public health guidelines should be getting out there. You do not have to exercise, you know, three, four, five hours a week. People will not do that. Let's give them something that they can do. So high intensity interval training. Your question was, what did they do? They trade three times a week. They did interval training on two days, the high intensity interval training, and a steady ride that was done in the laboratory in the early stages of the study pre-COVID, lasting around 40, 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. The total exercise time was remotely small. But again, anything is better than nothing. And Mm -hmm. these females had not done exercise before. I guess one point I want to make here is that it's all very well doing these wonderful studies in the laboratory where we have a ton of graduate students running around looking after them you know encouraging them during their exercise sessions the key is what happens when we let people go so as I said this is a roughly two-month study but the good news is we're following participants up we've already got six-month data and the compliance rate is very high and we're following them up for a year so these time-restricted eating and high-intensity training these are things that people can do and will do and that's the message that is very important I want to sit here and tell your listeners, these are strategies that you can take and implement into everyday life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So really just, I'd say, what, 20, 30 minutes, two times a week of weight training in that high intensity format, plus one sort of bout of cardio for a little bit longer, maybe, as you said, for about 40 minutes. That's as much as you need to do to sort of get some awesome benefits from a sort of metabolic perspective and potentially even a weight loss perspective. 
that loss, we should say. Yes, look, again, it depends on who's literally sitting in front of me because people have different goals. Some people do want to lose weight. Some people want to put on muscle mass. Some people want to, you know, reduce their blood glucose and their HbA1c. So you would know as a dietitian, you know, the one size doesn't fit all. But I think, yeah, the message is becoming stronger and stronger that we should be doing more intense or more resistive type of exercise. I think we've we've overplayed the cardiovascular aspect and we've probably neglected the muscle aspect for a little bit too long. And I'd like to mm. see the pendulum swim back so uh, that people would be encouraged and actually be educated as to the benefits of having a, a very high muscle mass. Mm, I love that. And being a fat loss dietitian myself, and I've probably weight or resistance trained for the better part of the last 10 years, at least since my early 20s, which I'm very proud of. Yeah. Would you say that I do get a lot of clients who are quite intimidated by the gym or who say, I've never done weights, I don't yes. know this. Would you say that using something like a simple, there's a lot of online apps available at a very affordable price, you know, a couple of dollars a month as a subscription. Would you say that with your background in exercise and um, obviously within your household, with your wife doing what she does in, in the area of sports nutrition, would you say that for, for as a recommendation, something like an online subscription type app where someone can do it in their lounge room, would that be enough to, to start some people off? Well, let's even, the answer to that is a definitive yes. There's no question about that. But if we're looking at people who have never done resistance exercise before, who are a little bit intimidated, as you said, of, of going to the gym and seeing all the largely huge males around there, <laughs> it's simple things such as these bands that, that, that you can buy now are are actually incredibly good. And during COVID, during the lockdown, a very quick anecdote, I was in Canberra at the time, got locked in in Canberra, I couldn't get back to Melbourne, uh, went down to the local shop. And on the first afternoon, they'd literally sold out of weights. It was just unbelievable. Yeah, well. But there were plenty of bands and things left. And I thought, oh gosh, this is a this is a poor substitute. But having said that, for the three or four months that we're in lockdown, uh, A, we were on the fifth floor. So I climbed stairs up to our you'll laugh at this. My wife climbed stairs with our 18-year-old, uh, or the other way around, I should say, my 18-year-old climbed stairs with, with my wife on his back, and that was resistance exercise. <laughs> and I just did as many exercises I, as I could, not with weights, but with resistive bands. And you know what? Come going back into the gym, I was amazed at how little I had lost. So I don't think your listeners need to be you know, buying huge sets of weights and putting bench press in the kitchen. I think you can actually be inventive here. You know, if you've got stairs and things like that, just use simple everyday things. I think we've made it too complicated, Leanne. I think you can get back to basics. Very, very simple. So mm. you don't have to go out there and buy a weight set. You can do a lot of things at home. And in answer to your question, yes, I think anything that encourages compliance and adherence, whether that's a video or a, a whatever the program is that you suggested, I think that's great. Absolutely. Let's take a quick healthy break and a quick breather. If you have a smartwatch, check your stats. If you had a Garmin, you'd be able to check your health stats for up to 11 days on one charge. It's a smartwatch that spends more time on your wrist and less time on charge. So if you're tired of charging your fitness smartwatch every night, get a Garmin. Wearing your smartwatch for longer could give you a more complete picture of your health. A Garmin can help you manage your stress levels with relaxation reminders and short breathing activities when your watch detects that you're stressed. It can monitor your energy levels throughout the day so you can find the best times for activity and rest. And it also has a hydration tracking tool that allows you to log your daily fluid intake. Now you can do more on a single charge. See which Garmin suits you at garmin.com.au and use my code LEANNE10 on any venue SQ2 for a limited time only. 
Now, let's get back to our show. Wonderful. And then going back to the research study as well. So it was very specific to women who were overweight and obese. So was there a particular, like an average age of the participants? Do you think something like perimenopause came into play at all or were the women a little bit younger? Yeah, look, that's a good good question. I think the average age was was 42. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that was important and I guess one of the things that we've been discussing at this conference, and we're going offline a little bit, I think it's quite relevant, is the time of exercise is now becoming a thing as well. We've talked about time-restricted eating and when you should eat, uh, perhaps now, timing is becoming more important rather than talking about calories and composition. But one thing that I've learned over the last probably four or five years is there's a lot of research now on the timing of exercise Mm. and you know whether morning exercise is more beneficial than evening exercise and the reason I'm saying this is one of the things that we did with our female subjects because many of them had busy lives many of them had professional careers many of them had kids jobs you know the usual sort of thing running the household as it were um, is what chronotype were they? And with, there's a question. There's two or three validated questionnaires that we can use to assess whether someone's a, a lark or an owl, whether they're even a morning or an evening person. We try to tailor the exercise to suit their practical lifestyle, but also to fit in with their chronotype. So that's important. Some of your listeners, I know, I'll use my example of my wife again. She's up and she's on the bike and I'm still in bed. I cannot for the life of me exercise in the morning. Mm -hmm. I am an afternoon exerciser. Mm -hmm. My son's a swimmer. They train in the evening competitions. They're usually in the morning. He doesn't swim as well in the morning. So you will know by now if you're a a lark or an owl. And I would Mm -hmm. suggest that the best time to exercise is one that fits in with your daily schedule, which is probably closely aligned with your chronotype. Interesting. Yeah. I've never actually really thought about that, but it does make complete sense, doesn't it? And you're probably more likely to be motivated to do it if it's at a time where you're feeling your best and most energetic self. Yeah. And and it is tied back to chronotype. And the studies show quite clearly that if you are a chronotype who is a is a lark or an owl training at the specific time of the day to match your chronotype does actually increase the training adaptation. Wow. So in other words, we know that people who train uh, later in the day who have that later chronotype actually put on more muscle mass. There's studies that have done this than if they trained doing exactly the same training program in the morning. So the chronobiology comes into not just the the eating, but also the exercise side of things. Well, I could, I could probably ask you 10 more questions about that, but I'm conscious of the time, so I won't. <laughs> now, going back to the research paper again, John, uh, Yep. As I said, the, the study was specific to women who were overweight or obese. So Correct. do you think that the strategies recommended, such as time-restricted eating and a couple of sessions of that high-intensity training, would be appropriate for someone of any gender if they had insulin resistance or if they didn't have any insulin resistance and, say, were a completely healthy body weight but just wanted to lose, say, the last three to five kilos, which I get questions about all of the time? Absolutely. Absolutely. Look, we chose that population, A, because as I said, um, feeling very guilty about not studying females and B, because this is a population, as we said, at risk. These are people with overweight and obesity and they are someone is, if you like, we can rescue from that next stage, which is probably frank type 2 diabetes, which no one wants because of the myriad of complications. Mm. So the answer to your question, very simply is yes, I cannot for the life of me see why anyone wouldn't be able to adopt these simple, simple strategies. And again, I'd like to emphasize that time-restricted eating is something that anyone can do. I'm not saying count calories. I'm not saying drop the ice cream, the wines, and the chocolate. Just think about the time of which you eat. And uh, one thing I want to finish on there is that 
There are no national dietary guidelines anywhere in the world at the moment which make reference to the timing of meals. Now, that's a massive omission. And Mm. my prediction is that in the next round of whenever we write these national recommendations for either Australia, the UK, Canada, America, wherever it happens to be, there will be enough research and enough strong evidence to show that the timing of meals is a very, very important and massively uh, vital part of any health recommendations for diet. You're so right. It's never come into play, has it? I've seen some beautiful guidelines in Brazil where it it centers around, you know, having the meals with the community and and, uh, including a family aspect, which I think is great. But nobody mentions the timing, do do they? It's very fascinating. Well, I've I've done a scour of the literature, or rather my students have, and I I couldn't believe that not a single, at least in the countries that we surveyed, and there's about 30 or 40, there was not a single mention of timing. And I think that will change. And, And again, it's a simple message. Timing of meals as important as what you eat in your mouth. And hopefully with you heading up some of this research, Australia could potentially be one of the first in the world to write it into their guidelines. That would be a first and it would be very good, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. All right, John. Well, where to from here research-wise? It was a fascinating paper. It really confirmed that we can do so much with our health with some very simple strategies, which are pretty practical for a lot of people to implement. Would you investigate or keep going down this route further or would you branch out and sort of continue to look at women but perhaps in different areas, those? who were healthy weight, those who already did have type 2 diabetes, what's sort of coming up for you in the next little while? Good question. So the first one is, well, not coming up, we're actually doing it at the moment, is a longitudinal study. As I said to you, most of these studies have been done over, you know, a couple of months. And what we're interested in is to see if subjects can comply and keep these excellent habits up, which we try and reinforce in the lab for a bit, two or three months you know, six months, nine months, 12 months out. So those studies are ongoing. And I think they're really, really important because before we can really put these uh, recommendations into the guidelines for, for national dietary or whatever it happens to be, we have to ensure that people can do them. So that's number one. Number two, I think uh, with regard to both the timing of meals, but the timing of exercise will become something that's actually becoming more important. The the Nobel Prize uh, in Physiology and Medicine in 2017 was was actually given to three guys who worked out uh, how chronobiology was was impacting uh, the lifestyle, if you like, or more correctly, the lifespan of of animals in this case. But they unravelled the molecular me- mechanisms to do with circadian biology, and I think since then there's been you know an exponential increase in the number of studies around the world done on circadian biology. So I think the next fertile area of research is to look at this interaction of both the timing of meals and the timing of exercise and putting circadian biology as an overlay to all that and I think that's a really exciting area and it's a it's in its infancy so that's where our lab's heading at the moment having said that a lot of the labs in the world is so you just got to try and keep one step ahead and uh, hopefully we'll be able to change policy sooner rather than later. Mm, And then I imagine from there the next logical step would be looking at uh, people like shift workers <laughs> and seeing how that impacts. <laughs> there, there are groups actually at the University of Adelaide who are already doing that. It's an incredibly complicated question. I don't know how you answer these questions as a dietitian because mm. people say to me, well, I'm a shift worker. When should I exercise? Should I be doing that when I finished or should I be? It's, that is a really, really difficult question. And um, we know, unfortunately, from the literature that the longevity, the lifespan of shift workers is on average about four or five years less. So 
what we've got to try and do is solve some of those practical real world issues. But yes, yeah, shift work is a, it is an incredibly complicated one because basically you're messing up the circadian clock. Mm-hmm. And once you mess up the circadian clock, you're in big trouble. You're prone to a lot of metabolic diseases. We know that shift workers, for example, have greater rates of obesity and type 2 diabetes in the general population. So yeah, if you're a shift worker and listening in, um, I don't know what to say. Try, try, try and get a day job. <laughs> Hopefully, watch this space for good things to come. Right? <laughs> yes, yes. No, it's, it's it's an area of research which is which is ongoing because it does have a, a massive ramification, and there's a large proportion of the population. I think it's fourteen percent who are shift workers mm. in Australia. So mm. it's not a small number of people if you extrapolate that to the potential for disease risk later in life and the economic costs. Hundred percent, and they're some of our most valuable frontline workers, shift workers. As oh, well, absolutely. So. Oh, absolutely. Mm. You can't do without mm. them, and that's the point. So. <laughs> I think probably we need to uh, put more emphasis on doing research in those sort of populations for sure, yeah. Mm, exciting times ahead, I'm hearing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> expensive times as well. Research costs money and the uh, the funding model in Australia is a little bit broken. The chances of uh, uh, getting a grant when you apply to the government these days are, are less than 10%. So I tell my students, you're in the business of rejection, so <laughs> get used to it. But we, we survive, we're surviving. Uh, it's the same for everyone. It's a hard battle. <laughs> yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, but you're doing some incredible research in this space. And thank you so much for giving us your time today. I appreciate that. I think you're at a conference today. So I really do appreciate you giving us your time and coming on the podcast and sharing your important messages and your important research findings with all of our listeners today. No, that's a pleasure, Leanne. And I hope, yeah, you know, if you're listening and you've got some take-home messages from this that you can implement in daily lives and, you know, who knows, these small changes, uh, little steps lead to, to bigger things and greater things. Absolutely. So I was going to ask if you had a parting message for our guest today, or for our listeners today, I should say, or if you uh, wanted to let our listeners know if you're on social media, or there's anywhere that we can sort of follow you or subscribe to your research at all. <laughs> <laughs> I try and keep a low profile. Um, I am on Twitter, but it's largely a, a scientific audience who follow there. I mean, look, we're not very good at the moment, our lab, of publicising what we do. We, we're based in Melbourne, but we have campuses all over the country. And I guess the one thing I'd like to say is that um, we're always short of participants for studies. Mm-hmm. At, at, at any stage, you know, we try and enrol as many people as we can. And and not only do we get some massively valuable information, but I'd, I'd like to emphasise, as you said, our subjects get information about their body composition, their bone mineral content. They've got access to nutritionists, psychologists, physiologists. So this is a two-way street. And um, I'd like to think that we're doing good work for the community, but it depends on the community coming to us so we can do our research to get the message back out to them. So if there are people out there who are interested in research studies, we're always interested you could look at the university websites of any university and, and most of them will be doing the same sort of thing, asking for subjects. And, and it's very valuable. It's a great contribution that you can make to science and hopefully we can give that back to you in, in the long run. Absolutely. And if you ever need help in terms of getting, getting some more participants in, just send me an email. I'll put the shout out on social media, on the podcast for you. Um, you know, I, I'm one of those clinicians who benefit from your research. I'm always happy to help and put the word out to oh, try and get wonderful. a few more participants in as well. Well, I'll I'll take you up on that. (laughs) I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Wonderful, John. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure today to have you on the Leanne Ward Nutrition Show. We couldn't thank you enough for sharing all of your knowledge and research. It's been been good fun. I'll try and get some uh, daylight now because it's uh, when I left Canberra, it was 14 degrees. I think it's 30 degrees here on the Gold Coast. So I'll go and try and reset my uh, body clock. (laughs) Exactly. Enjoy that vitamin D. (laughs) (laughs) I will. Thanks, Leanne.